0: A stakeholder is anyone or anything you commit to. Stakeholders take many forms, but are denominated in one currency, time. Financial costs are stakeholders. Each month of Netflix requires some amount of work, which you get paid for because of the time you spent training. Relational costs are stakeholders. Each mother or brother or spouse or neighbor is a relationship and relationships grow or wither when watered with time. Experiential costs are stakeholders. Each job or hobby has travel time, participation time, preparation time, recovery time, and so on. Hopefully, we mostly choose our stakeholders. We pay for Netflix, we select our partner, we pick our jobs. What this podcast will attempt to do is enhance our point of view regarding stakeholders. One weekend morning, my 10-year-old daughter wanted cereal. I told her to sniff the milk before she poured it. What? Sniff the milk? What's that? She didn't have a frame of reference for spoiled milk. With a swift sniff, I showed her. That's what we're going to do here. Instead of milk, we'll think about stakeholders. Subscription magazines that pile up unread. Weeks go between watching Netflix or HBO. Timeshares that expire. Some stakeholders are treacherous. Some stakeholders are happy trade-offs. Children are the best example. No one is always happy around their kids, but they're always happy to have kids. It's the familiar, familial aphorism. I may not like you, but I do love you. Good stakeholders make our life better. Bad stakeholders make our life worse. And they reduce our optionality for good stakeholders. Optionality is the hummus for the flower of success. When Seth Klarman was asked how investment firms succeed over time, he said, "...the more flexibility you have, the better your ability to move in complicated, volatile, and fairly competitive markets." Klarman wants that maneuverability to have, in his words, more weapons at your disposal. He's earned this because the stakeholders, the investors in his business, don't second-guess him. This, said Morgan Housel, is one of the reasons that Warren Buffett succeeded. It's been because he had the trust of his stakeholders, that no matter how crazy something looked, he was crazy like a fox. Buffett wanted the right stakeholders early on. In his book on Buffett, Roger Lowenstein wrote, And he did not want mere discretion over people's money. He wanted absolute control over it. He wanted no one to answer to for his decisions on stocks. Klarman and Buffett have succeeded because of a multitude of reasons, but one of them is the right stakeholders. John Boyd took a different approach to his stakeholders. He minimized them. Robert Coram wrote in a book titled Boyd, Boyd knew he had to be independent and he only saw two ways for a man to do this. He can either achieve great wealth or reduce his needs to zero. Boyd said that if a man can reduce his needs to zero, he is truly free. There is nothing that can be taken from him and nothing anyone can do to hurt him. Boyd sliced his commitments to everything, including family, to almost zero. Others advocate the opposite. Nassim Taleb wrote about F.U. money, a level of wealth where if you don't like a stakeholder, like a boss, you can parrot Johnny Paycheck and sing, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. But it's not about being loaded. It's about being lauded for your principles. Taleb told The Guardian, a janitor doesn't have to fit his ethics to his job. This talk of optionality isn't prescriptive. This transcription is just a description of the world's position. Too many options are as bad as too few. It means you're missing chances. Infinite optionality means no spouse. It means no hobbies. It means nothing. Optionality gives you the chance to move. Sometimes you want that, and sometimes you don't. When Alice Waters started Chez Panisse in Berkeley, she needed the ability to move, quite literally, from table to kitchen to market. She kept her costs low by visiting flea markets for plates. She kept her relationships insignificant. She, like Nassim, had the option to keep her ethics high while her profits were low. Fewer stakeholders allows for more career moves, too. Sam Walton started Walmart when he was 44, but he had the optionality, maneuverability, and flexibility because his wife and family allowed it. The Waltons lived Walmart so much that the family vacations were part family vacation and part work research for Sam. Sam didn't miss many retail trends because he saw them on these family trips. Like a well-stocked pantry, Walton had ideas to feed to his stores. He never got stuck on this or that because he knew about this and that. But generally we don't see this and that, we only see this. Opportunity cost is a tricky matter. It's like a magic trick our brain plays upon itself. Take this example. When car shoppers were asked what they might buy if they didn't buy a new Honda, they replied that they would buy a new Toyota. A simple but wrong answer. They could buy four scooters. They could Uber for four months. They could buy two older models. But even these answers are incorrect. If they didn't buy a new Honda, they could pay down their mortgage or start a college savings program. They could do a singles-only cruise in the Caribbean and listen to a pop star under the stars. They could start saving for retirement. They could buy Bitcoin. The list is inexhaustible, and that's why it's exhausting. Opportunities are hard to see. Opportunity costs are hard to calculate. When Rory Sutherland was looking to buy a house, he noticed this cost. I made the decision to underspend on property on the grounds that nearly everybody else was effectively maxing themselves out the default behavior of housing was to buy as much as you can borrow. That assumes the greatest return on happiness comes from property expenditure. No one really looks at the opportunity cost. If you've got a massive mortgage, there's a holiday you can't take. There are children you can't educate. When asked for alternatives, we substitute Toyota for Honda because it's easy. Researchers from Yale have found that vivid things are easy thoughts, though when it comes to the big stakeholders, our financial, relational, and experiential choices, the solutions become murky. How do you choose a spouse? How do you tell if a project is is worth working on? Will a larger house make you happier? Actually, that one's easy. No, it won't. Optimize your commute, not your house. That's the only answer you're going to get in this podcast. We aren't here for better answers. We're here for better questions. Let's dive in. One. We'll start with financial costs, because those tend to be the easiest. The general financial rule is to spend less rather than spend more. When Instagram started, it started as Bourbon. It was a check-in app. Well, oh, oh, let me clarify. It was ANOTHER check-in app. Founders Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger noticed that users didn't like the check-in part as much as they liked the photo part. Then one day, a friend said she wanted to take better pictures like a professional photographer that Sistram knew. Well, he told her, he just uses filters. Hmm, smartphones, social, pictures, filters, something is coming together. Sistram and Krieger had the time to figure this out because they kept their costs down. Systrom said about their first investment of $500,000, that's more money than I had ever heard of in my entire life of business getting. So here are two guys with a prototype, a couple of computers and no office, who raised half a million dollars, who were looking at each other like, we think we can make this last. We were living on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Whether they knew it or not, the Instagram founders were following Paul Graham's advice. This is what Graham wrote. For most startups, the model should be grad school, not law school. Aim for cool and cheap, not expensive and impressive. It's not just startups that are cool and cheap. Charlie Munger, the partner to Warren Buffett, notes that the Berkshire Hathaway office is simple. Buffett has said, I have every possession I want. I have friends with a lot more possessions, but in some cases, I think the possessions possess them rather than the other way around. Two of the most successful financial and otherwise investors, and they both suggest keeping things simple and minimal. This was a commonality that Jack Bogle had with Buffett. Bert Malkiel recalled, When Jack Bogle first met Warren Buffett, they were at a hotel together, and Jack recognized Warren, went up and introduced himself, and he said to Warren, you know the thing I really like about you is you have rumpled suits just the same as I do, and Jack and Warren have become very good friends. William Thorndike wrote a book about outsiders like Buffett, Munger, and Bogle. He concluded, there's an apparent inverse correlation between the construction of elaborate new headquarter buildings and investor returns. Each financial stakeholder, lease, employee, and supply bill reduces maneuverability. Ideally, additions grow the business and the options. As John Boyd and Nassim Taleb pointed out, there are two ways to get beyond the reach of nagging stakeholders. Shrink or grow. Ben Horowitz advised companies to grow. He would know. Horowitz wrote about his own entrepreneurial experience. Over the next five years, investors wanted us to do lots of things. Some things they wanted were smart and some were very stupid. We listened to what they had to say, but we always did what we thought was right, and we never worried about the consequences. Investors did not control our destiny. Horowitz figured out how to listen, filter, and then act on what his stakeholders suggested. This isn't always possible, and it's rarely ever easy. What helps? Horowitz wrote. When you generate cash, you can respond to silly requests from the capital markets the way Kanye would. Excuse me? Is you saying something? Uh Uh-uh. You can't tell me nothing. Overhead is the inverse of time. Overhead is a stakeholder, and the larger it is, the less time you have. Rarely is that a good thing. Instagram needed time to figure out what they would do. That's the heart of Paul Graham's advice, too. Technology startups hop, skip, and jump to ideas that finally work. Individuals face the same trade offs as businesses. Each additional item, whether it's a square foot of house, a set of skis, or a day of vacation, is a bill that's paid in time. Are they the trade offs you're stuck making? What are the ones you're selecting? Two. If minimal bills are the simplest financial advice, then marrying well is the simplest for relationships. The format for many podcast interviews is something like this. First, give us some background, then tell us your story, then reflect on everything you've learned. Those reflections tend to fall into three buckets inspire others to work hard, thank the gods and admit you are lucky, or thank your spouse for their support. Part of it is a medium. To be interviewed means you've done something. You've started a business or wrote a book. And we see that same spousal appreciation in the dedication and thanks section of books. I couldn't have done it without so-and-so. For good reason. Richard Thaler started his career with four simple words, dumb stuff people do. His research led to a Nobel Prize, but it's his relationship advice that most people should know. He told Barry Ritholt, you can never be happier than your spouses. Here's a man with decades of academic experience on the quirks of human nature, and he's distilled relationships to that mantra. Other times we'll get lucky marrying the right person. There was one newscaster who had their life turned around by a marriage. This newscaster was a bit of a loafer when their soon-to-be spouse issued this ultimatum. No one can understand what you're doing. Your parents are terribly disappointed in you, for good reason. I'm just not interested in having a relationship with you anymore. That newscaster got their act together. First, there was a cross-country transfer west, then after covering an upcoming governor, was another cross-country transfer east to Washington, D.C. Tom Brokaw said that this advice from his wife of over 50 years now was, quote, a breakthrough. In 2018, at the age of 94, people started to ask Charlie Munger more about advice on living well rather than living wealthy. It's as if Munger's candor, intelligence, and longevity have a greater appeal than his cash. His advice to someone young? I would just get up every morning and do the best I could in every way, and I'd expect that over time I'd do pretty well. And it's not very hard. I try to marry the right person instead of the wrong person. Munger also suggests that we invert the question. Rather than ask, how do I have a good life, we can ask, how do I have a bad life? As the expression goes, happy wife, happy life. Alex Bloomberg thanks his wife for her support during Gimlet's start. He said, if she wasn't on board, I definitely couldn't have done it. Spouses are the most important stakeholder in our lives, but hardly the only one. Because once you marry the right person, you may start having kids with them. And kids, if you weren't aware, take a lot of time. Gene Kranz was one of the first engineers at NASA. He was so early that when he flew to Florida, he was picked up at, an, at the airport by a young man driving a convertible. That driver drove like a maniac back to the Is and Kranz wondered what he had signed up for. Only later did he learn that they sent the astronauts to pick up the arrivals. It was the early days. Those first space programs, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, were a lot of long days and nights time is non-fungible. Each hour at NASA was at NASA and not at home. He reflected on the support his wife gave him. Behind every great man is a woman, and behind her is the plumber, the electrician, the Maytag repairman, and one more kid is sick, and the car needs to go to the shop. Helen Walton had a similar experience. When her husband, Sam, ran a few stores, he did a lot with the family and the community. When he started opening Walmart stores, he did a lot less. Helen recalled, We were supposed to be taking turns getting the kids ready for Sunday school, and to get four little kids dressed for church with nobody to help me was a little unreal. One way Walton spent more time with his family was combining work and pleasure. Daughter Helen said that the family trips consisted of camping, canoeing, and visiting new stores, Waltons, and the competitions. Marcus Limonis might be a modern mutation of Walton. Limonis tells people, To be a business owner, it's not a glamorous job. It requires you to make a lot of personal sacrifices. If you want to meet a business owner with a great home life and a great life balance, they're probably BSing you a little bit. It's very difficult to be a business owner and have balance. I'll be honest with you, I don't have good work-life balance, end quote. These people aren't bad parents or bad people. They're just busy ones. Some careers are large stakeholders on time. Sometimes they aren't. Sometimes people can be married to a job. In a book, Alice Waters, the author writes, Finally, Alice had to choose between Tom Luddy and Chez Paniz. No one was surprised when she and Tom parted ways. She was married to the restaurant, and both she and Tom recognized that she could never give him the time and attention that he required. Ira Glass has an interesting take on this. One stakeholder in Glass's life is the family dog. In one interview, he was asked about a life hack. This is what he said. And this is the very first time I've attempted to use the phrase life hack in a sentence, is that my wife and I decided to live just a few blocks from where I work. We did this because of our dog. Since I spent at least an hour every night walking the dog, I didn't want to spend another 60 or 90 minutes a day commuting. We don't have the time. Like lots of people, I work long hours. Glass's stakeholders are his family, his job, and his dog. There's no place for a commute in the 168 hours in a week, so Glass finds a way to squeeze things in. Ezra Klein, on the other hand, got his break because he had time to spare. Long before Klein thought of Vox making movies for Netflix, he read a blog by some college kid named Matt Iglesias. Klein recalled, If this college kid can do it, I can at least try. That blog led him to reading more, and he said, All of a sudden, I worked bizarrely hard. Klein got feedback from readers. This was the heyday of helpful comments on blogs. Klein's blog led to an internship at Washington Monthly, which Klein viewed as graduate school. Only they paid him. He said, He said, So much of my particular path is one lucky break after another. He had time to get those lucky breaks because he didn't have stakeholders. People are one of the biggest joys and drags of life. The best people nudge you to feel better and the worst nudge you to feel worse. Financial stakeholders can be big and small. It's easy to cancel a subscription. It's harder to get out of a mortgage. Relationships are harder yet. Are you friendly with your friends? Three. The final section may be the most important because it's the murkiest. It's easy to see the opportunity cost of a stakeholder. If you pay for Spotify, you can't pay for HBO with those same dollars. Ditto for relationships. In the best cases, toxic relationships expire expediently. For experiences, we'll look at three areas we can learn about and from. Investors and their limited partners, sports and how analytics is a petri dish of stakeholders, and career risk with the wrong stakeholders. Much of investing advice can be summed up in the Howard Marks idea. You have to be different and you have to be right. Being the same as everyone else works fine for some things, but not for active managers. What most active managers want is to get money from limited partners and do what the investors think is best. LPs give investors their money because they think the investor knows what's best to do. This coordination seems clear, but it's not. Wes Gray is one of the active investors who's seen this stakeholder system get screwy. We know multiple, multi-billion dollar hedge fund managers with heavy value focus that are literally out of business because of the back half of 2015, because deep value got destroyed and redemptions overwhelmed their ability to convince capital to stay. That is, the LPs who thought their investors were so smart suddenly stopped suspecting so. Gray has an idea about how to deal with this about-face. The edge is not in building a better mousetrap. The edge is in coupling educated capital that understands why your mousetrap works and pairing the two together. Educated capital is what Morgan Housel and Roger Lowenstein referenced in our introduction. Though Buffett has been at it for decades, this part of his system has only recently been copied by others. Now investors want educated stakeholders. Josh Brown said, if you can have the client come to you, That's an awesome email to get. We live for that. Thomas Russo likes to invest in consumer brands. As such, he tries to find people who used to be business owners. These people, Russo said, understand the ups and downs. They understand missed earnings, bad weather, and good cultures. And when I explain our goal, it's quite familiar to what they felt as business owners. John Montgomery had a similar idea to Russo. Rather than former business owners who understand the means, Montgomery focuses on the ends. Stewardship is a pretty good screening tool. If you put at one end of the spectrum greed and a lot of things the financial industry is criticized for, and at the other end generosity and making a difference in life, it's pretty great to say, if you want to make seven figures and are about generating personal wealth, you won't come to Bridgeway. Joel Greenblatt's concentrated positions meant that, like clockwork, I would lose 20% of my net worth in two or three days. This, Greenblatt says, was inevitable. My investors were great, but maybe they wouldn't be so kind when that happened, and it did seem to happen every two or three years. Now Greenblatt has a stakeholder of one, himself. Mark Andreessen said that at A16Z, they tend to go all in or not, and they make mistakes too. In venture capital, Andreessen said, half of all companies go to zero, a quarter make one or two percent, and one quarter return above three percent. Andreessen said, The good news is that we have a base of limited partners that deeply understand that this is how it works. So when we have one that goes to zero, they don't call us up and complain. Venture capitalists align their LPs with their mission. Entrepreneurs need to align their venture capitalists with theirs. Andy Weissman advised startups that once they pocket venture capital dollars, they also shoulder venture capital businesses model. If you take money from a venture capitalist, the way the economics of VC work, are an investor like me needs to make 10 or 100x on our money, which means we need these companies to be really large businesses for us to return money to our investors. If they're not, those returns make less sense to us. When the time to take venture money is when you think your incentives are completely aligned with that. You have to believe it's a big business. You are comfortable taking big risks, including existential risks around managing that business. Ben Thompson said that, Having VC money sucks because you have this sort of pressure that you have to grow and you have to go public. Stuart Butterfield faced this problem after Flickr, but before Slack. He wanted to make an online game. He said it was Dr. Seuss meets Monty Python. The game had early adopters paying customers and excited developers, but it couldn't work. He said, we never found the magic formula that would make it work economically. It would have been a fine lifestyle business, but it was never going to become the type of business that would justify $17.5 million of venture capital. Some of those investors stayed with Butterfield as he went on to create Slack. For other businesses, it's not an official group of LPs, but a large informal one. We call them customers. Marcus Limones said, Customers are investors. They choose to give you revenue or not. In some ways, a business can select for customers like investors select for LPs. Dan Egan at Betterment said that he hopes the company is wonderfully boring. Too many individual investors spend too much time acting and not enough time thinking. David Ogilvy said much the same thing. The great thing is to have the right clients. Ogilvy was a contrarian advertising man who put a man with a monocle in one of his most iconic ads. You have to be different and you have to be right, wrote Marx, and Ogilvy got to be different and right thanks to the right stakeholders. Sports has faced the deluge of analytics, like a teen faces hormones. There's a new face, new mood swings, and a uh, different product at the end. Sports, unlike puberty, though, has a lot of stakeholders. In 1985, Bill James published Baseball Abstract. In 2003, Michael Lewis published Moneyball. Each was a popularization, Lewis' bit of a glamorization, of the analytical potential of baseball. The reaction was, like a baseball game, placid. Why? The stakeholders. Scouts didn't want it. Fans didn't want it. Coaches didn't want it. These people already knew what to do. They understood baseball. The newspapers, too, thought analytics were stupid. They were the ones who decided what was what. The problem wasn't stupidity, though. It was clumsiness. When teams merged onto the freeway of analytics, it was with such speed that some stakeholders suffered whiplash. Teams that saw an advantage transitioned quickly. General Manager of the NBA Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, has reflected the most on this. He said, Our poor CEO, all the press hits of negativity for our owner Leslie Alexander hiring me, he's just dealing with these radio guys calling me deep blue, calling the owner crazy. Morey recognized the problem. Statisticians, nay, nerds, arrived like missionaries. They announced, whoa, 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 you're doing all this wrong. Morey said his integration was easier. By the time basketball started looking at analytics, a lot of our analysis was making coaches feel better. Guys like Shane Battier averaged 8 points and 5 rebounds, but coaches loved them. A lot of the advanced analytics stuff said that guys like Shane were worth a lot more than you think. When you have a message that's like, hey, you're right, here are a few ideas you can improve, versus, hey, you've been wrong your whole life, you idiot, the integration was a little easier. Jake Nichols told the Wharton Moneyball professors that talking to golfers has been easier than other sports. He said, Mostly because you don't have the stakeholders that are already in place, a more traditional manager, or general manager, or owner. You can go right to the players. What makes sports different is the number of know it alls. Billy Bean told Michael Lewis in Moneyball, Everyone who picks up a bat thinks he knows baseball. Jeff Luno has learned both internal and external lessons from Bean. Before the Astros won the World Series, Luno said in 2016, I think it's important in our position we spend the requisite amount of time managing the stakeholders. The fans, the media, the influencers and organization, the ownership, all those stakeholders. I spend a large part of my job managing those stakeholders. It all comes down to communication. Successful transitions start at the top. Billy Bean and Daryl Morey succeeded in implementing analytics because the team owner supported them. Those were the days of colonization, when analytics was just making a stake. Now the environment is friendlier. The stakeholders, fans, owners, and beat writers get it. Sort of. Brian Cashman said of the New York Yankees front office, It's always been a big part of what we do here. But some organizations are more aligned than others. When Wharton professor Caden Massey was asked about the Cleveland Browns' 2018 draft, he said, They have to manage the politics of their situation. How much should that weigh? I don't think it should weigh very much. Massey pointed out the issue of career risk. He explained that some choices may not be irrational if you're a general manager and your job is at stake and you want to win this year. But for an organization, it's hard to imagine that's ever rational. Good bosses hold the shit umbrella. Bad bosses let it roll downhill. This creates the principal agent problem and career risk. Rory Sutherland explains career risk this way. If I pretend everything is logical, it may not be a really good decision, but if things go wrong, no one can blame me. This is an extraordinary form of corporate insurance. Another way this manifests is the expression, you don't get fired for buying IBM, and this is true for both investors with the wrong LP base and for engineers with the wrong bosses. Michael Mobison said this, I do think there's an element of career risk, and this spans not just sports but also investment management. Bill Belichick goes for it on fourth down and it doesn't work out and people give him the benefit of the doubt. But if you're a coach who has a 500 team, it may be the correct decision, but if you lose that game, people don't think about the quality of your decision-making. They do think about the outcome. That's a really big problem. Mobison is pointing out something that Annie Duke calls resulting. It's a problem when the top-down leadership doesn't support a good process. It's a problem when the top-down leadership has the wrong stakeholder mindset. In 2015, author Andy Martin followed Lee Child as he wrote the 20th book of the best-selling Jack Reacher series. Martin, unlike Child, gives an ample backstory. Before writing Reacher, Lee Child was asked not to return to his job in television. He recalls two options, working in a warehouse or trying to become a professional writer. He wrote the first chapter of a book, handed it to his wife, and asked, What do you think? Should I keep going? Keep going, she said. Stakeholders encourage us to move forward. Child subject Jack Reacher is an ex-military cop who finds himself on buses that end up in places with conflicts that need to be resolved. Oh, and someone always needs their ass kicked. The books are great and sprinkled with interesting nuance, like Reacher's possessions. As a nomad, Reacher has no wardrobe, he only carries a debit card, an ID, and a toothbrush. His vigorous showers, sometimes utilizing a full bar of soap, keep him clean. But eventually, he's gotta change his clothes. So he does what any other good guy, vigilante does, and he heads to a second-hand store. Reacher shoulders his new set and trashes his old. In one book, he comments that buying new clothes every few days only seems expensive. Think of the alternative, Reacher says, having a closet. But in classic children's book form, if you have a closet, you need a house. If you have a house, you have a mortgage. If you have a mortgage, you have a job. And if you have a job, you don't have time. Maybe owning clothes isn't the expensive thing. Fellow fellow of fiction, Tyler Durgan, agrees. The things you own end up owning you. In a conversation with Stephen King, Child said that this minimalism appeals to everyone. He said, it turns out anecdotally to equally be a woman's fantasy. That they would just love to walk away and... Be somewhere else tomorrow, with nothing tying them down. It all comes back to time. How much do you have? What do you want to do with it? Hopefully those are some better questions. Thanks for listening. Very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave and take your book with you.